Hey, this is the last coffee house. We are on the right today. It's a Ben Shapiro reading list. The most debated and least understood concept in American history must be economics. It has the widest, most profound implications for the fate of all of us, and shockingly uninformed people love to pretend they have perfect knowledge of it. Enter Thomas Sowell, one of the most important thinkers in history, and especially recent history. He wrote Basic Economics, A Common Sense Guide to the Economy. That's what we're looking at today. Some background, it was published 2014. I'm not sure if that was the original publication date or that was the fifth edition that we read, the date of that publication. But it illuminates so many corners of the philosophy and empirical questions of economics, and it's much more entertaining than it sounds. (laughs) It's not a pedantic textbook. It's fun and excitement and frivolity. There are wizards, and it's just, it's worth the read. So what's the content? What does it have? What's going on in this thing? We're not going to be able to cover every economics concept. Obviously, addressed here, this is not a one-sitting kind of read. As you know, I've been skirting by book upload dates with other kinds of episodes because I've been reading this tome. So here's kind of the outline of what he goes through. This is just from the table of contents. He talks about prices and markets, industry and commerce, work and pay, time and risk, the national economy, the international economy, and special economic issues. That's progression of what he talks about. It covers everything, all of it. So important ideas that we're going to pull out of this thing. The availability of money does not determine the value of something. The amount of goods and services available determines the value. So everybody obviously has heard the term supply and demand, and they have some kind of rough understanding of what that means. And the important contention here is the flexibility of the mechanism of prices instead of using bureaucracy. So you take something like a beachfront home. I don't have a beachfront home. I would like a beachfront home. It's a scarce resource. There are more people than there are beachfront homes. So how do you determine how people get those things? In Soviet Russia, government leaders and friends of government leaders would get the beachfront homes. And the same thing with other scarce resources. But you have to have some way of figuring out who's going to get it. So in a capitalist system, you have pricing and the way pricing works. Prices of anything ripple through the entire economy. And there are feedback mechanisms throughout the economy that check the price constantly for accuracy. So who's buying it? What quantities? How this impacts ability to buy other things? How it impacts the seller ability to function and buy other goods? And these are thousands or millions of independent buyers and sellers that you have to monitor. And no one can monitor all the information necessary to make these determinations. On top of that, no human being who has ever lived could be trusted to be perfectly even-handed in its administration, even if they had all the information necessary. So questions, where should the milk go? Where should the wood go? The real cost of something is what else could have been done with it or how else it could have been used. So if you dump tons of pallets of wood in my backyard, I'd kind of poke at it a bit, wonder what's going on, and then I'd go back on with the rest of my day. But someone in construction could build a house out of that thing. So obviously, we know what government control might look like. Places like Ghana, the Ivory Coast, Burma, Thailand, they tried government-controlled economic systems. In 1960, India and South Korea were at parity when it came to economic growth. India started implementing government controls and fell behind South Korea, and eventually India shifted to a more open system in the 90s. China started this transition in the 1980s. Obviously, there are differing degrees, but the open capitalist system has a lot more information than any government bureaucrat would have. So, okay, if you take nothing else from this episode, out of anything that I've said, if you take nothing else, just take that price controls are bad. (laughs) 
you have rent controls in places like New York. The goal is to make housing affordable to people who couldn't otherwise afford it. So what actually happens though? People who would have otherwise moved to more expensive places or other places in general, or wouldn't buy additional places, now do those things. So it creates more scarcity. You have falling housing turnover. People who are ready to move have fewer options now because of the lower turnover in housing. Immigrants especially have trouble finding housing. So all the housing is already occupied because people don't want to give it up because it's so cheap because it's got rent controls and that has a negative impact on immigrants. Housing that would have otherwise been torn down so that they could rebuild new housing with new standards and equipment, etc., that ends up staying up. And then you have housing that becomes more outdated and requires more upkeep because people want to maintain their price controls. Then the building, the actual building of property, shifts to the luxury market because you can actually make money in the luxury market because you don't know whether you can or you won't be able to in the lower end market. And you have wealthy people who hold on to places that are cheap that they wouldn't have held on to otherwise. And it ends up that affluent people get more of the benefit when it comes to price controls, rent controls in areas like this. And in general, rent controls tend to create higher rents in those cities on average rather than lower the rent so people have more options. Another way to look at it is if you have something like price controls for flashlights in a blackout. You know, if there's a blackout, people really need flashlights to be able to see. There are always the price gougers who just jack up the price of the flashlights they have so they can make more money. If you institute price controls, then suddenly one family, instead of buying one or two flashlights, they'll buy 20 flashlights just to make sure they have enough because they're so cheap. And then you have scarcity for everybody else. Economics is about what emerges. It's not about what people intended by whatever they're doing. Doing. Another question, something that people throw fits about, higher prices in stores located in bad neighborhoods. Now everybody's been to a gas station and they could see that <laughs> in gas stations things cost more than if you would just go to a regular grocery store. But in bad neighborhoods they go even higher. So people want to call it greed and just say that these store owners are being greedy and that's the reason. But it costs more to deliver goods to these areas. When it comes to security, insurance is more expensive. They have to subsidize and take more measures to, to prevent theft, which happens with greater frequency in these areas. So if you try to use price controls against these businesses, then you're just going to have fewer businesses come to the area. You have to consider the difference between incentives and goals. The waitress doesn't bring you food because she's just trying to help you out. She's trying to get tips. If you made something like medical care free, then people would go to a doctor for every ailment instead of just saying, well, I, I don't really want to spend the money on something that's not significant, so I'm not going to go to a doctor. You have to consider these kinds of incentives and how they would function. Somebody is going to pay no matter what. You know, that doctor is going to have to spend the time and effort to deal with that patient, whether you want to call it free or not. Wages, we get to wages. So four-fifths, as of the writing of this thing, the four-fifths of millionaires earn their mil millionaire status in their lifetime rather than inheriting it. And other weird things when it comes to wages, minimum wage laws create a surplus of employees. That's really important to understand. If you lower the price artificially of an employee, then suddenly you have way more people who are going to go for that job. There are tremendous hidden costs for things like unions. And then the European Union has been disproportionately amenable to various government controls and unions and, and that sort of thing. They have a long-term economic slump, especially compared to places like the United States, and slow job growth. U.S. job creation is triple that of Europe, 
Now, it took centuries to develop capitalism in the West, and we looked at that other book, a great book that we talked about how the distinction between being able to use capital and not being able to use capital, and all the things that undergird that, are extremely important when it comes to determining how to create wealth in a community. And that book had its issues, but this book goes over a lot of the same a lot of the same ideas in some of the sections. You can have entrepreneurs all you want, but if you don't have capital, you're not going to be able to do much with that. And one of the biggest ideas that I hadn't considered before that was really important <laughs> is when it comes to natural disasters. So you have the government who subsidizes areas of natural disaster. So you have something coming through, there's a hurricane or tornado or whatever that destroys a bunch of houses and buildings, etc., causes a whole bunch of damage. And then you have disaster relief. The government comes in and pays for a lot of those things to be rebuilt or third parties come in and in conjunction with the government, they help pay for a lot of the things to be rebuilt after a disaster. So what does this do effectively? What does it do? <laughs> it encourages people who would not otherwise be taking those risks in those areas and encourages them to keep doing that. So if they have to repair or rebuild their house every five years or something like that, they just do it because the government subsidizes it. They get the disaster relief. Instead of moving to another place so you wouldn't have that wasted labor and wasted economic activity going into rebuilding these things every so many years. And the calculation that was in the book said that you could have paid every Katrina family that was displaced, you could have paid each of them $800,000 to relocate rather than rebuild those places just to be subject to more disasters later. And I think, like, if I'm being honest, I think that if the Katrina families who suffered at the time, if they had heard that, okay, we could, we can rebuild or we can be given 800 grand. I think they would have taken the money and I think they would have relocated to Oklahoma or something like that. And then obviously something oft forgotten from the 2008 crisis was that riskier lending was forced by statute. They said, the government said, give loans to riskier people who wouldn't otherwise be able to get loans. Does that seem like a good idea on the face of it at all? Then there are issues, of course, of corruption, even if the government was perfectly benign and positive and great. You'd still have all the issues we already talked about, but you do have corruption as a major issue. Places like Congo and Bolivia have been suffering from for a long time. Obviously, places like Venezuela. And the question is, who monitors the monitors? <laughs> the Soviets put party members everywhere, just in every inch of the mechanism of governing. And this leads to incredible inefficiency. And there were actually, uh, during the Nixonian years, Nixon actually put into place wage and price controls. Obviously, he was a Republican. The artificial prices caused problems. Farmers would end up shipping their goods to foreign countries because they couldn't make money here. People would clean out grocery stores <laughs> because the prices were kept low, so artificially low, that they would just buy them up. So whoever got there first, and then you'd have scarcity for everybody else. And this was an effort of political expediency rather than considering it long term because you don't have to deal with the effects long term. You can just blame it on somebody else, something that's going to has a time horizon of 10 years. Then you're already out of office by the time you have to worry about that. There's this issue where Maryland raised taxes on millionaires and then the millionaires left. And then overall, Maryland made less in tax revenue because of the people who left. And then on the flip side, when places have lowered the capital gains tax, that led to more economic activity, which increased the overall tax rate and tax revenue. 
National debt is most important to understand in, in relation to GDP and income of the country and as a percentage of income rather than just a, it's one number that's going one way or another. You have to look at the income and the GDP to determine the relative importance of the national debt to that. Obviously, the national debt, it just scares the hell out of me uh, when it comes to our country right now. And Trump hasn't done much about it when it comes to fixing it. He's pretty much just been spending like crazy. He's been a very middle-of-the-road kind of conservative, so. I mean, this is going to have serious long-term consequences. When it comes to the value of politicians, you can only speculate. You don't get to know the value of them before they get in office, which is a scary, scary thought. And there are these ideas of the do-something-versus-do-nothing policy. When it comes to a politician, obviously, the general idea is that they need to be doing something if there's a crisis. Uh, in 1987, Reagan did nothing about the economic crisis, and there was a following 20 years of economic prosperity. But it's important to point out that this isn't controlled experiment. These are extremely complex situations. So, but that is still a big question, whether you should do something versus doing nothing when it comes to the economy. And pension benefits are an incentive to leave the cost to another politician. So you can promise these pensions long term and say, you're going to get this great pension, that great pension, and just not have to worry about it because a politician down the line, you know, 12 years from now is the one who's going to have to pay for it. International disparities in wealth. Why are some countries rich and some countries poor? We talked about this a little bit with other books. Some of the things that are brought up here are that the Arab world translates very few books every year. This is important. You're not getting that kind of intellectual capital that you'd otherwise be getting, but very, very, it's a fraction of what every other country does in translation of books every year. And there's a mixture, obviously, of culture and happenstance when it comes to why some countries are more successful than other countries. That's a very complex question. We'll get to Guns, Germs, and Steel at some point, one of the earliest books I've read about this topic, and we can talk about it more there. But it's culture and happenstance. There's a lot that goes into it. There's this phrase here. These are when he talks about myths about markets and how people make claims that are too vague to be positively false. He quotes somebody in saying that. And that's something you run into way too often. There's no such thing as a reasonable price. It depends on the cost to produce the thing. So people need to stop talking in those kinds of terms. I am so disenchanted with everything on the left right now. Because they talk in these moralistic terms and don't have any concept of reality attached to it. Things like brand names. Of course, people just decry brand names and, and you're just paying for the label, that sort of thing. But just imagine you go into a random place to get a burger. You have no idea how it's going to taste, the quality, the cleanliness standards, how much it's going to cost, what what's going to be available in this particular store. Now, if you go into a McDonald's, you know all of those things. You know what you're getting into before you go into it. That's the brand and that's the value of branding. Just like if you're travel traveling anywhere in the world and you want a cold drink and you go into a store and you're looking over all these drinks and you see one that's a Coke, you know there's going to be some standard there that you're going to be okay with because it's a Coke. So branding is important and you have in, in a lot of countries, they'll have their own like government brand or whatever. And most often the quality of the government brand is way lower than anything in the private sector. And this idea, nonprofits, they have an interest in alarming their constituencies so they can get more action, get more donors. And they have little incentive to be honest about these things. So when you see these nonprofits who are advocating X or Y, you have to be really suspicious <laughs> of whether they're willing to be honest about what's going on. 
and income differences. Obviously, it's oft talked about and oft decried the income disparities between groups or people or whatever. But you have to look at very important factors like average age. Average age is a big deal when it comes to younger people are far less likely to have the kind of assets that older people are likely to have, and they're far less likely to have higher incomes. So you really have to control for average age at least when you're looking at different groups and their incomes. And he gives a little primer on economic theory toward the end here. It talks about Keynesianism, Keynesian economics, and the, the general theory of employment, interest, and money written by Keynes. And it was hugely influential at the time. This is what, the 30s? It supported the idea, or at least was used to support the idea, that government spending, intervention, and deficits are useful policies. It was struck soon after with a kind of long-term resistance that eventually chipped away at Keynesian economics. The Chicago School of Economics and Milton Friedman attacked it until generally there's been more of a shift back to the classical economic models. There's a warning about how economists need to not overpromise what they can predict and not predict and what's going to work and not work and all that stuff. And he goes back into price controls one more time to talk about bread and butter and champagne and caviar. So if you look at, okay, bread and butter are things that are necessities, champagne and caviar are not. So you have price controls on bread and butter, then you're working within a, an economic system where the people who sell bread and butter are still competing with the people who sell champagne and caviar. So you're going to have capital shift from one area to another and suddenly you have fewer people producing the bread and butter and more people producing champagne and caviar <laughs> so my analysis all right that was the book excellent beautiful stuff economics is more philosophy than hard science that's something that you realize as you're studying it more and more so much is up in the air Soul here is providing more a framework for thinking about economics rather than insisting that his empirical claims are the end-all be-all and are correct and need to be replicated everywhere. He couches what he needs to couch where we can know more or less about the empirical claims, like when he talks about Reagan's lack of intervention and how it's not a controlled experiment. But it's most important to understand the way that the thinking goes when it comes to these kinds of economic principles. These are very complex systems, and it's very important to not just ideologically say that 100% we need to have government control of this industry or that industry. We need It's only fair to have free healthcare or whatever. You need to understand all the ideas behind classical economics and what built Western civilization before you start trying to tear it down. Extremely, extremely important work. Okay, what's the big picture here? All of these ideas must be disseminated throughout society. We It's something that can rebuild the cultural commitment to merit and success and hard work and all that stuff. It can rebuild those things if we can get these ideas to kids early. Even if they want to resist them long term and argue against them and argue for a different way of doing economics, they should have read this book. Everybody, every kid in the world should have read this book. That's why this is the first book that gets my required reading seal for every student on the planet. You need to read this book. I'm going to go out and try to do some activism related to this to get schools to assign this book. So I'm going to get out. I'm going to do my activism. Hopefully it's not going to be overshadowed by any other activism that's going on right now. But still, big, important, super incredible idea ideas going on here. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much to the author. And I'll see you on the next one. All right, bye.